for your warm welcome this morning, but also this week as well. It uh, feels a lot like being at home, just a similar kind of ethos of college, and um, it's been great to uh, see some people I've already met and um, also make some new friends as well. Um, I want to ask you some questions this morning. I think particularly of those of you who are concluding your time uh, here at Ridley. For now, maybe you'll come back to another study and you'll miss the place. Um, what impresses you when you think of, of, of life, of ministry, of mission, when you look and evaluate and try to discern what God may do in a person's life or in a situation? What impresses you? What will make you pay attention? What makes you think this person or this project is going to be really fruitful? What is it that makes you think that? Or similarly, what, what about the other side of that? Uh, what do you consider hopeless? What makes you despair? Maybe that's a pastoral situation where you just think, there is nothing here, there is nothing that can be done. Or something happens in the news, so most of you I'm sure will be aware of the, the bombing in Manchester in the UK uh, the last couple of days. And you look at a situation like that and you think, where do we go from here, what can we do? What prospect is there, what promise is there uh, that something good will come? What makes you despair? What makes you dismiss or, or make something pass you by unnoticed? What makes you think there's nothing, there's no promise, there's no potential? Well, I think time and again in life, in ministry, we're faced with these kinds of questions. Uh, on, the, on the positive side, we might be dazzled by high-profile speakers or, or events and think, yes, things are going to happen there. But similarly, we might just despair over those pastoral situations, or those situations in our own lives where we think there's no life here, there's no promise. Well, this morning I want to look at the story we've just had read to us, and particularly the first part. So I think it's a story that challenges our assumptions about what is promising. I think it's a story that can comfort and encourage us, but equally it's a story that may disrupt and disturb us as well. And it's a story that reflects something of how God works in the world. It's also a story of my missionary hero in the Old Testament, if not the entire Bible, which is unusual because um, she's not even named. Um, it's a story that's easily missed, um, that is heartbreaking, that is remarkable, and as I said, is indicative of how God seems to work in the world, in and through us. Well, like all good Bible scholars, we ought to have some background here, some context, and I, I gather that the um, AT group are already working through things, so this is timed well. Um, we join the story of Israel uh, during the, the life of Elisha, but we join the story actually outside of Israel, so in Aram or Syria. And um, 
there's quite enmity between the two nations and, and Aram would take raiding parties, groups of soldiers across the border to, to plunder and to pillage. And um, the, com- the commander of the nation's soldiers was a guy called Naaman, who's introduced here as a great man, literally a big man. Okay. He's very, very successful. We read here in the text that um, he was, in a way, blessed by Yahweh. His success came from Israel's God, which is quite unusual, especially as his success was against the people of God as well. Whether he knew that or not was another matter, but we, we are told that in the text. So he was an unwitting beneficiary, perhaps, of God's sovereign work and favour. But as well as being very successful, he had one problem, which was that he had an incurable disease. He could not get rid of it. Now contrast Naaman, this big man, this successful man, this important man, with the girl that is mentioned. She is young, or literally small, compared to his bigness. She's nameless. She's an object of war. She's not an instigator of war. She's a spoiler of war. She's collateral damage, you might say, between these big conflicts. She has no agency. She has no choice in what has happened to her in her life. She's become enslaved in a foreign land, an enemy land, and enslaved in the household of the man who is ultimately responsible for her tragic life circumstances. She's a fleeting character. She's mentioned here and then isn't mentioned again. And it's very easy to read the narrative and completely miss her, maybe because she's not named as well. Um, And even when you look at the literature on this passage, often the attention is drawn later on. Um, And it seems not many of us have time for this girl. She's got no family, it seems. Maybe they were killed, maybe they were left in Israel, but certainly they could not protect her, they could not keep her, they could not hold on to her. She's ripped from her family and alone, and who knows what she has experienced? There are a lot of gaps here, a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, Who knows what kind of trauma and abuse she's experienced since the soldiers came to her village? We don't know how old she is, We don't know how long she's been in Syria. We don't know how she has been treated. Maybe she is one of the lucky ones because she is in Naaman's household. We just don't know. Well, I wonder what you would think if you had come across her, if you had met her. Would you be overwhelmed by the tragedy of her circumstances? Could you blame her if she hated Naaman with every fibre of her being? Could she blame her if she wanted his disease to get worse rather than better? Or even withhold the information she had? What would you see? A nothing, a nameless person, an unpromising, unimpressive, weak individual is one of life's losses. And yet, in the story, it tells us something different. She makes this simple, almost naive and childlike wish 
in verse 3, if only my master would see the prophet looking with the prophet, Elisha, who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. That to me is remarkable for a couple of reasons. Firstly, how could she have that kind of confidence in the God of Israel who did not stop her being ripped away from the land of her family? How was she not bitter? How did she not think, well, God can't protect? How did she think that God would want to help men? That's remarkable in itself that she held on to some kind of rigorous faith despite The second is remarkable because she had that desire to help Naomi. She had that compassion against all odds, against all circumstances. She not only believed God could help, but she believed he wanted to and that she wanted to as well. And another remarkable thing, actually, is that she was listened to. Maybe Naaman was, was so desperate, maybe she'd become quite an important part of the household, we just don't know. Um, but she, this naive childlike wish was listened to and acted upon. And suddenly commanders and kings were involved. And as the story unfolds, as we've heard, um, Naaman does indeed visit Elisha. He is healed. Um, powerful and important adults almost completely ruin everything, completely mess everything up and cause a diplomatic incident, suspicion and intrigue. It's only, the, it's only the, the weak, the servants, the slave girl who appear with any real dignity here. But um, he has some kind of conversion experience in faith in Yahweh. So this is a remarkable turnaround from very unpromising beginning. And the last thing I want is to be casual about her suffering and her circumstances. But isn't this remarkable? In this story we see an example of God taking a situation that was hopeless, that was laden with despair and grief and loss and pain and transforms and brings about his purposes at one point in Israel's history, the world's history, through this weak and desolate situation. There's another child, young child in the Bible, who has some parallel experiences. But I've just been writing an article comparing the two stories. Uh, a child in the New Testament who is forcibly displaced from their home, from their country, whose family had to flee under the sentence of death, who had to find refuge in another country and rely on the hospitality of strangers. A very picture of weakness. I'm talking, of course, about Jesus in Matthew 2, which is, again, a story that we could easily miss of vulnerability and displacement and suffering. I think this sto these stories remind us and rebuke us. Well, don't be too impressed by those in power. 
Don't be too impressed by um, people who think, wow, God must work through that because that is amazing. Pay attention. Be attentive to the weak and unpromising as well. And we know, of course, that that child in the New Testament uh, grew up and as a man was nailed to the cross, which was the ultimate symbol of defeat. If ever there was an ultimate image of, of failure, of, of defeat, of desolation, uh, the cross was that. But, yet again, through weakness, God was achieving his most decisive, most powerful, most transformative victory. And yet again, God transforms through weakness. The Bible does not shy away from pain and desolation and misery. It doesn't shy away from pain and brokenness. I think we often do. It's hard to look at these things for too long. But as we are attentive to the Bible, it forces us to look straight ahead into the eyes of the suffering. The Bible does not dismiss the minor characters, the, the tragic ones, the misfits, the unimpressive and unimportant. And neither should we. And I want that to be an encouragement to you and to me uh, as you go on in your discipleship and ministry. Um, be attentive to the unlikely, to the unlovable, the unlovely, the unpromising. Be attentive to those minor characters in the stories, in the Bible. Be attentive to the minor characters in life, in your churches. Be expectant, be hopeful that God can and will bring about transformation through these unlikely places. Be encouraged because for you and I, those misfits, those unpromising people, it may be us, be encouraged that if you are feeling that you're at the end, that you don't have any potential left, be encouraged that God transforms through people just like you and me. So be humble and expectant and hopeful and don't buy into the glitz and glamour of ministry. That stuff bears pretty hot. But be enraptured and captured by God's transformative work through weakness. I wonder if we might pause and consider two things. Can you think of one person in your life for whom this girl has some kinds of parallels? Maybe life has just become a tragic impossibility. Uh, you, when you think of that person, your soul sinks because you think, I can't see how this can be. I can't see how this can come out of this. Can you take a moment just to think of that person and pray for that person? And along with that, perhaps we could um, 
pray for the people of Manchester as well. Again, a very desolate, difficult situation that somehow God would be at work in and through his people in that situation. Let's just take a moment of quiet before we continue with the service. Heavenly Father, we want to pray for your forgiveness when we are seduced by the glitz and the glamour and displays of, of power. We want to pray for those minor characters, the, the misfits, the unimpressive in the world's eyes. We pray you would see them and see ourselves through your eyes as well. Please sober us, humble us, encourage and lift us that we may see others as you see them and that we may be ready and attentive to your transformative work through weakness. 